Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Stan Moser on the rise of the influence and popularity of what became known as contemporary Christian music. Coincided with these adjustments and these changes in technology, these changes within the church structure itself, talking about the student ministries, um, it also was driven by par- what we call parachurch groups like uh, Campus Crusade, Youth for Christ, um, that came alongside churches and that administered to the needs of the younger people at the same time. So that was all all the advent and the and the visibility and the popularity of contemporary Christian music was driven by all those factors happening at the same time. Stan Moser next. As we are hearing many classic contemporary Christian songs from the 70s, 80s, and 90s during this Classics Week, today we continue talking with former Christian record company executive Stan Moser, one of the -the behind-the-scenes people who helped build the contemporary Christian music industry. Stan, you didn't work directly with late and very popular recording artist Keith Green because he was with another label, Sparrow, but what were your impressions of him? Keith Green was an original. Uh, he wasn't really concerned about what people might like. You know, this is way overboard. Do you think the Apostle Paul was concerned about what people might like? I think um, not. <laughs> and and Keith, Keith had that same attribute. He, From everything I know and read, and I wrote about him a lot in the book because Billy Ray shared a lot of his story with me, uh, he was a very unique person who was willing to lay it all down and just speak what he believed was the absolute truth about uh, the necessity to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and here's how you do it. And that's what I'm talking about, inspired psalms. Uh, Twilight Paris, go back and listen to The Warriors of Child, and go back, you know, many of Twilight songs, and you go, oh, my, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. And so they didn't have a certain look. They didn't have a certain style. They didn't dress a certain way. They didn't, they didn't have any norms uh, standing in the way of them communicating what, what they got in that secret place that only they could go with God. It still happens today. It still happens today. Uh, but as I often say, there was a day where CCM actually meant contemporary Christian music. Today, it often means commercial Christian music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you get formula driven. And again, I, I could name you many names where that's not true. Uh, but that's always the concern in the life cycle of any musical style or any business venture, by the way, is that the commercial side, you know, drives all the artistic creative decisions. I hope that makes sense. No, it does. And there was an interesting aspect of, of Keith Green's ministry back in the 70s. I don't know how long he did this. I don't know if he did this with every album or with just with one or two, but he would give the albums away or at least allow people to have them for whatever they could Hey, and I, my understanding is I didn't make the, the folks at Sparrow terribly happy. <laughs> no, he was a very, uh, very uh, uh, high-selling artist, you know, a revenue generator for Sparrow. Uh, and he made a decision that uh, the Lord really directed him to give his music away. So he left the Sparrow label after his contract, was a very honorable guy. And he created, I know, of at least two albums that he created. Uh, and it was uh, whatever you can pay. 
well as it turned out i think i think at that time the albums were uh, this was in the early 80s as i recall the albums were maybe 798 898 something like that mm-hmm. and and i was told later that he more than doubled the, the income for every album by being faithful to that and of course he lived in a not-for-profit world and all that so uh, he was very unique, uh, and I have great, great respect for him, great, great regard for him. I uh, wish I'd gotten to know him personally, uh, uh, but he is—he seemed to be, from everything I've been told, uh, everybody who knew him, he was he was very sincere, very dedicated, very loyal. I'd like to ask you, too, a, a bit more about Amy Grant, of course. She was, uh, from the time she was signed, you signed her, and, and then uh, albums like uh, age to age and some of those early ones uh, just made her known uh, across the Christian community. And then I think it was around what 1985 with the Unguarded album, and then is where she began to move and become known in the general, if you call it the the, the secular, the mainstream, whatever music world. And tell us about the impact of that. I know the hope was to bring contemporary Christian music. There was sort of that evangelistic or missionary mindset i think behind that to some extent but uh and some artists try to follow her in that path but she was kind of unique amy has always been unique um yeah she she was uh, she was in a youth group at belmont church here down on music road as a 15 year old kid and uh her youth director at that time was a guy named brown banister uh yeah. who, who was to become a producer an engineer or something and he hooked up with a guy named Chris Christian, uh, who was quite well known, a produced artist like Dogwood back in the back in the day. And I met him in 1974. Did a deal with Chris to help us find talent and produce the talent. Uh, and he, he's the one that Brown Bannister was try, working for him in his home studio, literally about a mile from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, and uh, and Brown was trying to be an engineer, so Chris was teaching him how to be an engineer. And, He's the one that did the demo for Amy that I heard listened to over the phone when Chris called me and said, hey, I think we got something. So that's how Amy got her started. It was always unique. And she was a at that point, I think she was a 16 year old girl that honestly really didn't play the guitar well. She didn't sing really well. She couldn't dance. She couldn't. You know, she she was just she just had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way to describe it, by the way, she still has it. Uh, and over the years, obviously, as she developed her skill set and so forth, she became quite good at yep. singing and stage performance, all that. So that's not not knocking her at all. Mm-hmm. But she was so young; she was she was still learning. So Amy, uh, we signed her, and I think we did our first record in 1977. It came out, and it was uh, it was one of those signings that um, when the, when her album came in, I listened to it, and I looked at my marketing guy. I said, "Well, boy, I sure made a mistake on this one." This is never going to sell, and uh, <laughs> I just have to admit that I was pretty pretty wrong on that one, wasn't I? Thirty million <laughs> records later, uh, and but she had the it factor. Uh, then we did the second album. The first album did okay, thirty thousand records or something, just because she had a lot of personality. Uh, and also, this move of God was so powerful in this evangelical renewal CCM world that uh, it was easy to get that many sold. Then the next album came out and. Uh, uh, Gary Chapman had written a song called My Father's Eyes, uh, which was just beyond inspired. Uh, and so we made that the title song of that album. And so her sales doubled. Uh, then a third album came out, uh, Never Alone, uh, and her sales doubled again. So now we're selling 100,000 plus records. Uh, and so she's the 
big deal. She and Sandy Patty on one side was coming, starting about that time in the more traditional uh, musical style. And Amy was obviously a few years ahead of her in the contemporary side. Uh, and so we were between contracts. We did a three record contract back in those days. And so she wasn't under contract. So I was working to sign her again. Obviously her uh, brother-in-law, Dan Harrell, who was also her manager, was driving a hard bargain in my opinion. So it took a while for us to get to a new contract. And, but we knew we needed a record by her every year. So we produced a live record uh, as a little one-off not in the contract. And we did that. It was such a great live record, but it was too long for one album. Remember the days where it actually was on a piece of vinyl yeah. uh, and you could only have room for about 45 minutes <laughs> on a piece of right. vinyl. Uh, so we put it out in two installa you know, two installments, you know, volume one, volume two. That gave us a little extra time. And so we negotiated hard on a contract back and forth, back and forth, finally settled on a contract. And uh, it was just brutal. It was a brutal negotiation. Uh, I, I, I probably can say this now, but I, you know, he insisted that I give him a $200,000 royalty guarantee per record mm. for three records. Yeah. You know, so it's like $600,000 of royalties that we were committed to, but I, we did it. And the first album that came out on that one was a little album called age to age. Uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and so in the first year we sold, uh, 250,000 records. And I looked at Dan Harrell and said, boy, you were, you didn't bargain hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> so that one record paid for the whole contract. Anyway, that's a little, that's behind yeah. the scenes. Right. But, but that album was absolutely changed the trajectory of contemporary Christian music to a whole different level, full of inspired songs, full of great performances, beautiful, great production. Uh, there's no, nothing negative. Fast forward four more years. Uh, the Unguarded record came out, which yeah. was much more edgy, more, more pop feeling, uh, still Christian lyrics and so forth. Um, and we, in those days, we had to actually manufacture product and sell it to a store, ship it to the store, collect the bill, pay royalties. You know, there was a whole uh, physical process. And we were always, we were always able to get about 20% of our sales out of what we call the secular radio uh, 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 stores. Uh, and so I decided that Unguarded had the potential to, to be far more in the secular outlets because of Amy's trajectory and also the music. And so I made a deal with A&M Records, which was the, a big deal back in the day, uh, and uh, to become our distributor to the secular market. And we branded the album on both Murr Records, we did the Christian market, Murr Records, they did the secular market, it was branded as an A&M release. So they did the marketing and the sales. We still owned everything and all that. Uh, and that that launched a whole new era of Christian music in secular outlets. And shortly after that, Michael O'Mardian was producing, Michael O'Mardian, quite a famous producer, many people might know his name, yeah. uh, in the secular world. And he was producing uh, the lead singer of Chicago, a guy named Peter Cetera, who had risen to fame as Chicago. As obviously know, everybody knows Chicago was a pretty big group if they'd been around you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And so uh, Peter Cetera was doing a solo record, and Omar was in the middle of producing it. And he told, uh, he told, he told uh, uh, Peter, he said, hey, uh, here's this perfect song, but it really has to be a duet. And I think I've got the person for you to sing the duet with. He said, well, who's that? Her name is Amy Grant. She's a Christian artist. And he said, Peter looked at him like he had four eyes and said, what are you talking about? Who is this person? Hmm. And 
Omar said, you know what? She's performing at Universal Amphitheater on Saturday night, 6,000 people. I said, and he said, if you'll just go with me that for a few minutes, and if you don't get it, it's okay. Uh, and so that's how he got connected with Amy Metter backstage, and they came out with a single, um, Next Time I Fall in Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was number one on the charts. And that gave Amy a whole new venue of pop radio, songs like Baby Baby and so forth. Yeah. But she's never lost her, her love for the Lord and her desire to communicate the truth of the gospel. Uh, but she's always been um, Amy Grant, and that's always been part of her. Uh, and so that's 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 what makes her so unique and uh, honestly so successful at mm. what she's done for so many years. Well, Stan, I do, I do want to ask you, and by the way, my guest is uh, Mr. Stan Moser. He is the chief operating officer today of ACT International, but he's been involved in the leadership of Word Records, Star Song Records, Maranatha Music. We're talking about really the content of his uh, 2015 book, We Will Stand, the real story behind the songs, artists, and executives that built the contemporary Christian music industry. And just one side note for those that may be new to this music, maybe either uh, recently come to Christ or uh, a, a younger person, it might sound hard to believe, but back in the early days of this music, the 70s and the 80s, it was actually quite controversial in church circles, uh, even uh, individual Christians. Uh, what, what can you tell us about that? I mean, uh, some, some churches even opposed, uh, I mean, people, uh, groups, oh. De Garmo and Key oh. and Petra and all, all the rest. Oh, very, very much. Uh, people have, if you're, not, if you're not ancient like you and me, <laughs> uh, you don't realize that there was a day back in the uh, 70s when Jesus music was launching, contemporary Christian music was launching, uh, that many, many church groups considered guitars and drums evil. And the only instrument that could be played in a sanctuary was a, an organ or a piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we encountered that constantly. That was a big deal. A little, uh, a little, uh, uh, it was very, very much, uh, very narrow, uh, you know, thinking, uh, obviously, uh, pretty sure God created all instruments. Uh, you know, all things were created by him, for him, and <laughs> consist in him. So I'm pretty sure. Uh, but there was a church, a traditional church view that, that, no, that's, you know, that's scary territory. That's what the Beatles do. That's what those evil, mm-hmm. uh, you know, secular groups do. And, and they were right, obviously. <laughs> so that's what they did. Uh, and so they, it took a while for the, for the mainstream church leadership and even the the uh, body of Christ, mainstream body of Christ, the mainstream churches, I should say, uh, to really embrace what we were doing. Uh, but what happened is um, there was a, another movement going on in the church back in the day, starting in the late 60s, called the student ministries movement, hmm. which we don't talk about very often. Uh, but it, you go into, when I was in church back in the late 60s, there was no such thing as a youth group. I mean, what was that? There was no such thing. And I, like I say, in the Southern Baptist Church. But over the next 10 years, uh, youth groups, there was, there was a, a movement in mainstream churches to create youth groups, student ministries. Mm-hmm. Guess what was happening? This music was ministering to those students. Yeah. And so the adults in charge began to realize the value and the power of contemporary Christian music and Jesus movement because the impact it was having on the on the young people right in front of them. Uh, and so it was a whole lot better than them listening to the mamas and the papas and you know <laughs> whatever else you want to whatever else you want to pick out of that era. Uh, and so that that was a huge factor. The timing of the uh, 
contemporary Christian music with the timing of the student ministries uh, growing dramatically in churches. Uh, and today, if you're if you're new to the church, you, you say there really wasn't a student ministry. No, there really wasn't. Uh, we had Sunday school classes, uh, but there was no student ministry where we were doing events and you know uh, special uh, special gatherings and all that kind of stuff. So I think that was a big factor. Uh, the other thing that was a big factor um, in the growth of CCM, while it's, while it's, you know, while I'm talking about that, mm-hmm. is that if if you go back to back into I was born in 1949. Well, we had we had phonographs at that time, and we had 78, 45 singles, and we had LPs, 33 and 30 LPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what what happened is that the the phonograph was the first way that you could personalize your choice in music. Before that, there was broadcast music, but you didn't get to choose the songs. You got to choose the radio, if you're going to listen to the radio or not. Now, later on, there became certain kinds of radio stations playing certain types of songs. So there's a little bit of, of, of um, stratification there. But the phonograph was the first time that we had the freedom to pick our own music and play our own music. Then that was very, very effective in growing the Christian music and the secular music business. And then in 1965, uh, the Ford Mustang was the first vehicle to come out with the eight-track player. So now you had the ability to take your personalized music and make it portable as long as you were in your vehicle. Mm -hmm. Then in 1979, Sony introduced the Sony Walkman. Now you have your personalized choice of music that's portable and you can take it with you wherever you go. And so now we all carry a, a phone <laughs> that has all kinds of music on it. But the point is that the growth of, of Christian music and contemporary Christian music coincided with these adjustments and these changes in technology, these changes within the church structure itself, talking about the student ministries. Um, it also was driven by par- what we call parachurch groups, like uh, Campus Crusade, Youth for Christ, um, that came alongside churches and that administered to the needs of the younger people at the same time. So that was all of all the advent and the and the visibility and the popularity of contemporary Christian music was driven by all those factors happening at the same time. Well, Stan, as we uh, fast forward in our time is is obviously going quickly, but how, how do you um, assess the changes in, in the Christian music uh, industry, the messages as we go to the present day, I realize we're moving through the 90s, the early 2000s, and there are certainly things to specifically look at in each of those eras. But what about where we where we are today? How would you compare it to those earlier days? Well, it's all you know. I always I always tell people, you know, sooner or later, music will pass you by. Uh, that's why God in Las Vegas, so you could go hear Neil Diamond and Garth Brooks. Right. You know, later, music will pass you by. Uh, it won't be the popular uh, sound on the on the popular radio station, uh, and and that's okay. You know, it they, it won't have its own TV show. You know, uh, uh, so it, music will always pass you by. So I'm always cautious uh, because the music that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm drawn to is probably different than the music that younger people today are drawn to. And there's nothing wrong with either one. It's just, that's just the music cycle that we all go through. I remember when I was uh, after about 10 years in in my career and I was literally in charge of the company that was doing 60 or 70% of the sales in the entire industry. Um, And uh, I remember people would, would talk to me and they say, okay, so you, 
So you sell the Happy Goodman family and the Inspiration Quartet. You sell George Beverly Shea. You sell Petra. You sell Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Um, you sell um, um, Al Green and Shirley Caesar and the Mighty Clouds of Joy, all the what we call black gospel music at that time. Uh, and so, so what kind of music do you like? You know, because now look, I've got about 150 artists under contract of every genre you can imagine. Some that I just named, and some mm -hmm. I didn't even. I did two records with Jesse Jackson, Operation Push Choir. I mean, come on, you know that's that ain't Amy Grant uh, back in the early '80s. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, but they're all my favorites, right? They all have to be your favorites because mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do is let you know Love Song know that you like Al Green better. Uh, and so I'd always say, oh, you know, I like them all and so forth, even though I had a few that I'll, I would actually listen to mm -hmm. for pleasure and uh, enjoyment. Uh, and so I finally had the, got the right answer to that question, Bill. And so people said, well, what kind of music do you like? And I would look at them and say, I like the kind of music people buy. <laughs> because that was my job. It wasn't it wasn't that I actually liked to listen to Twilight Paris, you know, other, rather than Amy Grant. It had no bearing on anything. Uh, because I like the music people buy. Well, I think that's kind of a, where we are today. Uh, if you're in the label world or the publishing world or you know, uh, streaming world, um, it's really consumer driven. Uh, and mm -hmm. so the fact that I might not be wild about XYZ artist or that song, um, that's okay. That's the business model. Uh, this, the second thing that's influenced and in, in beyond description that's influenced today's uh, Christian music world is technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the day was back when these days I was talking about, we couldn't record an album for less than $30,000. And and then you had to manufacture it. And you had to pe have guys and gals on the road selling and traveling and paying expenses and shipping and taking returns. I mean, it, it was a big deal. And, and radio stations, um, they weren't available for ordinary people to pitch their records. We were the label taking it to the radio station. So we were the gatekeepers, for lack of a better term. Yeah. You had to kind of pass through this box first to get an opportunity out there with the general public. Well, what's happened with digital recording technology is that it costs virtually nothing to record an album. Uh, and uh, you can record one in your bedroom. Uh, and so what's happened is, is that what I, what I call is that the quality of the song, the quality of the production has been dumbed down to a lower common denominator. Hmm. Back in my math days, the lowest common denominator. So it's at a lower common denominator. And now with social media being marketing available and so forth, anybody that wants to make an album can generate a crowd of 3,000 people on social media and they can get a few downloads. Uh, and so the label people have had to deal with that reality. Mm -hmm. And they still have to be gatekeepers to some degree. Uh, and uh, so they had to be very cautious about what they select because they're using the same, a lot of the same promotional vehicles uh, in the streaming world and the digital media world. Obviously, they still have relationships with guys like you that uh, can make a song, you know, broadly broadcast. Uh, but the technology has changed the music industry dramatically, and it's not going back. Uh, not going back. Well, Stan, I, I, in just a moment, I want to ask you about what it is that you're doing today, but I, this is a big, broad question. Uh, how, how do you assess the impact of contemporary Christian music on believers, on the church? We know that some of the songs are in hymnals, church hymnals, uh, and, and on the world, or fulfill its promise. I think it has, and I think the, the digital availability uh, is having continued to have a great impact. The reason we 
back to 2015, eight years ago, it's hard to believe, we did the event CCM United, uh, the television special and the album uh, DVD, which is, we've, we've shipped those all over the world. And, you know, the night we did it, we had 186 countries streaming, mm. people from 186 countries watching on stream when we did this. And our mission there was to let, to, to allow these songs to do what they do one more time. And so now that we've recorded all that and it's been out there for eight years, it continues to do what they do, uh, present the message of Christ, the hope and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ uh, again and again and again, hopefully attracting some new listeners, mm -hmm. uh, not reinforcing those wonderful uh, values and uh, benefits of following Jesus uh, for those that already have experienced them in the past. So, you know, music, uh, it's amazing uh, how many songs from 50 years ago, you and I could probably sing all the lyrics to. Uh, music has a great impact, and they've proven it in Alzheimer's research and so forth. You know, the, yeah. something with the brain and the melody and the lyric and, and the notes. Um, and so I'm, I, I, I sit here today grateful that God continues to use uh, Christian music, contemporary Christian music of all flavors. Uh, and, uh, yeah, sure, the songs get off track every now and then. They, they've done for maybe not the... Uh, holiest of holy you know, uh, motivations. Uh, but you know what? Uh, all in all, uh, boy, it sure beats the alternative. That's for sure. And that, uh, that concert that came out at the, uh, when the book We Will Stand came out, that's still available, right? People can still... Yeah, it's still available. Uh, or watch you know, it. Gaither's organization still has it on all kinds of television. Uh, before, before we sign off, uh, if, if anybody wants to go to ccmunited.com, uh, you'll see the, there's area on there where you can actually uh, read the book. It's on there free. You can mm. the concert. It's on there free. Uh, just kind of scroll down a little bit and you'll find it. Uh, and also you'll see that uh, with ccmunited.com right now, we are now uh, a not-for-profit uh, and we're determined to help make more music happen. Uh, and that's why I'm so excited about being part of ACT International because we are a not-for-profit covering for 500 ministries that have 700 missionaries operating in 54 nations and growing every day. And all of these, most every one of these are musicians, creatives, artistic types that God has called to use their creative gifts to advance the gospel, to feed the kids in Africa, to do street evangelism. To I mean, you can imagine 500 ministries, all the different uh, you know, approaches to, to godly calling. And so that you'll see that there at ccmunited.com. You'll see a little bit about that. And I'm just excited that after 53 years in this uh, quote unquote industry, uh, God's still willing to let me uh, be involved in maybe uh, making a little more music possible or a lot more music possible and helping uh, communicate the, the message of Jesus Christ to a few more people. So that's his chief operating officer of ACT International. People can check that out too, as, as you said. Uh, Music is very much a part of it. Christian musicians around the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, worship leaders, and and sometimes it's a musician that uh, we got one that's a a blind musician who literally their, their entire ministry is teaching other blind musicians how to play. Uh, so it's you, very unique, as you can imagine, coming out of creatives and musicians. The the ministry choices are very very unique. Uh, we got illusionists, ventriloquists, painters, sculptors. 
worship leaders. Uh, it, it's 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 just amazing uh, that God continues to allow me to be involved with uh, people that do have such a great artistic expression that honors Him. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Stan Moser, author of We Will Stand, the real story behind the songs, artists, and executives that built the contemporary Christian music industry. He's CEO of ACT International. Go to ccmunited.com. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Paul Grimmond on dating and navigating the space between singleness and marriage. But it seems to me that um, because of the way that our world uses the word dating, um, we want to be particularly and kind of peculiarly Christian, I guess, about the way that we do it. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>